Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Minimalist Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus, and together we're The Minimalists. We've got Alabama here. Hi, everybody. TK Coleman. What it is. Got the rest of our team here in the studio today as well. And I'll tell you this, simpletons. You are in for something different this year. It is a brand new year. And this is a brand new... What would you even call this? This was not really an interview. It was a conversation. Mm -hmm. It was enlightening for me. One of my favorite thinkers of... Well, just my favorite thinker. Certainly my favorite living thinker. His name's Kapil Gupta. And I just had an hour-long conversation with him. Really... uh, split myself open and put my guts on the studio table here. And you'll notice some pauses that occur during this conversation. We're not going to edit them out. But there were times where I didn't know where the conversation was going to go. And I wanted to be sincere. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to fill the air with bland natterings. I wanted to look for, as we talk about in the conversation, the truth. I learned a lot from this man the last two years or so ever since I stumbled across his work and really dove deep into better understanding the truth and many of the truths about the problems in my own life, whether it's medical issues or just psychological misery, the anxiety that we all seem to experience. Mm. I have to give you a caveat though. This conversation might not be for you. Ooh, it's uncomfortable. Mm. And so after the fact... I think TK, Ryan, and I, we will come back into the studio here and we'll have a conversation about the conversation. We'll also read some stuff from Kapil and we'll talk about what made Ryan uncomfortable, what made TK uncomfortable. I know I was certainly uncomfortable. I want to throw in uh, uh, a superfluous word, um, delightfully uncomfortable. Ooh. Like I really, and we talked about this a um, couple podcasts ago uh, when it came to just holding space for kind of the absurd. Mm-hmm. And th- it's funny how this, um, if this was the first conversation I've ever heard with Kapil Gupta, I probably would have been really angry. Mm. Um, but because I have gone out of my way to like hold space for the absurd and I've listened to a lot of his, his uh, philosophy, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not angry at all. It's more about, um, it's just very challenging to what we look at as the status quo, what we look at as acceptable. Um, I mean, t- to be, you know, quite honest, like he he really basically takes the things that we value as a society and he just pretty much calls it, you know, a bunch of bull crap. Yeah, nonsensical. And, uh, nonsensical, yeah. TK, before we get into this conversation with Kapil, obviously we'll come back and mm-hmm. have a longer dialogue about it. What's a trio dialogue? A trialogue? <laughs> <laughs> what were your initial impressions, briefly? This is fun. You know, philosophy 
is such a serious word. And we usually think of it just in terms of these lofty aspirations, like the pursuit of truth, the love of wisdom. But I think philosophy is also a form of play. Philosophy is about engaging ideas with a sense of adventure and exploration without being detached to outcome, without needing to come away with something useful, without needing to have a new belief. You can just engage the ideas. And I thought you came into that conversation with that kind of open-hearted, open-minded spirit of play. You weren't laughing and giggling. Play doesn't require laughing and giggling. There's a difference between play and giddiness. But you were exploring that conversation with a sense of non-attachment. And as I was listening, I wasn't judging. I wasn't trying to form a conclusion. I wasn't trying to decide if he was right or wrong. I wasn't trying to agree or disagree. I was just letting it marinate. And yeah, it was delicious, man. I enjoyed that conversation. (laughs) And by the way, you say it's not for everyone. I think that's the eternal caveat. Everything Mm. that we will ever do. It's not for everyone. Yeah. Might not be for you. I'll take it a bit farther. Yeah. It's probably not for you. Mm. Yeah. And... I even talk about that in the interview at one point. Like I just wasn't ready for this particular kind of truth or these particular truths five years ago. Mm. Even though I had achieved a level of success and you know, supposed you know, enlightenment with respect to material possessions. And, and I understood a lot at that time, but I wasn't ready for these truths. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so if you can hold space, as TK just said, in fact, we have a great comment from Carol, one of our Patreon subscribers. And I wanted to bring this on. I was going to do this after the fact, but since TK was talking about this, I think this is the perfect time to read Carol's comment about how she has changed her mind and opened her mind recently. Malabama, you want to read that for us? Sure. Here's what Carol sent in. Hi, everyone. Just wanted to say I was not okay with TK joining because I felt content with just Ryan and Josh. When I first started listening, I used to think, why is Ryan here? What is he contributing? (laughs) And then I listened to your podcast when Ryan was away and it was just Josh and it didn't feel the same. I was not happy when TK made some Jesus or God reference early on. And I think I texted you about it. I feel like such an asshole. (laughs) I texted out of some kind of anger, I guess because I was not happy that you added TK to the mix. Clearly, I have issues with change. Anyway, here we are months later, and I wanted to apologize for being a dick about TK. (laughs) Now, when I listen, I cannot imagine not having Ryan and Josh and TK and the rest of the team present. Keep doing what you do, as it adds a lot of value to the world. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, One thing I'll say is if me not being on this podcast if I thought it would be a better podcast or add more value, I would have no problem not being on this podcast. I feel the same. So, um, so yeah, I mean, if it's, yeah, I, I really, that's a really nice comment. I mean, she apologized for being an asshole to TK, but not me. I'm not going to hold that against her. (laughs) 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 Well, first of all, thank you for those really kind and generous remarks, but I don't think you were an asshole to me. I think you were just frustrated about something that you didn't like. You didn't send me a text saying, what the hell are you doing on the show, idiot? Maybe that would have been you being an asshole to me. Um, well, she probably sent text to us as the minimalists, and we just didn't forward it to you. Oh, thank you. Okay, so maybe you were a jerk to me and these guys protected me. Well, hey, um, that's a powerful lesson there, right? And, and there may be someone who felt that way and hasn't changed their mind, and that's okay, too. I, I appreciate you being open-minded and, and sticking with us and... 
not writing us off on the basis of, hey, I didn't like the way that first round went, or hey, I didn't like that person that you quoted. Because you stick around long enough, we we quote a lot of people, you know, we quote a lot of people, we talk about a lot of things. And so thanks for everybody that's stuck around for this experiment and giving this a chance. Appreciate it for real. If you enjoyed this conversation that I had with Kapil Gupta, you can find his work at kapilguptamd.com. He has a bunch of free public discourses. You can also follow him on Twitter to find some of his writings, his musings. And if you're interested in diving into his work, I would definitely start there. You don't have to spend a dime. You can fall down that beautiful, terrifying rabbit hole of truth. Enjoy this conversation with Kapil Gupta. We'll see you on the other side of it. Kapil, thank you for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me. You know, I um, came across your work a couple of years ago. And since then, I have put together an entire list of questions that I was hoping to ask the great Dr. Kapil Gupta. And I realized that these were very sincere questions a few years ago. But these questions began to sort of answer themselves as I was exposed to more of your work and also to just more truths in my own life. And I was going to bring in that list of questions, but I realized it would be insincere to ask those questions now because I don't feel that same curiosity, interest to those questions. And so instead of doing that, I wanted to start at the beginning I was first exposed to your work because I read a book of yours called Direct Truth. And then from there, I started reading some of your public discourses from your website. And I think at first, my initial reaction was anger, frustration, um, disbelief of a sort. And I wanted to read the email, the first email I wrote to you. This was a couple of years ago, back in 2020. And instead of asking you a bunch of insincere questions, I thought maybe we could talk about some of these realizations. I wrote, Kapil, your books and interviews found me earlier this year, back in 2020, amid some unanticipated chaos, a sudden hospitalization. Over the subsequent months, as I peeked behind the curtain you opened, I realized it's all chaos. And I've been lied to my entire life. I would have pinned that and say I've also been lying to myself. I now understand that my beliefs, opinions, and methods cloud the truth, that ego, hope, culture, habit change, and mindfulness barricade the path to peace, that right and wrong, good and bad, should and shouldn't are moralizing constructs that prevent me from asking questions that matter. These realizations were particularly troubling at first because I've spent the last decade attempting to, quote, help people with the, quote, right solutions. What nonsense. Of course, I wasn't ready for this insight 20 years ago, 10 years ago, even two years ago. I thought I desired the truth, but that desire was not sincere until now. It took me 39 years to get here. Well, I've known for years that how-tos and prescriptions don't solve real problems and that attachment is antithetical for, to contentment. I knew these things only intellectually. 
which prevented me from understanding. Nick Appeal, uh, two years later, you responded with just a few words. You said, those are some sincere words, wise realization. And I thought about it for a couple of weeks, and then I responded with this. And here's really what I was hoping to talk about today. Appeal, I've been c- contemplating whether to reply to your thoughtful response because I don't want to fill your inbox with bland natterings. However, I feel compelled to say thank you. Over the past two years, your writings have exposed me to profoundly difficult truths. Truths that, at first, I wanted to dismiss because their implications repelled me. What if every solution I've pursued is actually the problem? What if I've been lied to my entire life? What if I'm lying to myself. Yet it was too late. A man cannot unsee a sunrise. Your discourses led me to deeper realizations. Fear exists only in the presence of consequences. Freedom is the only worthwhile thing. All conflict is self-conflict. I'm going to pause there for a moment, Kapil, because I was hoping that we could talk about the conflict that we experience in our lives. And I think I spent those first 39 years mired in conflict that I didn't even realize it was conflict most of the time. In fact, seeking out conflict. And in a way, I was seeking out my own discontent, a sort of lack of peace. And when I stumbled across your words, it opened up this door that helped me that supported me in a deeper understanding that everything that I was pursuing was um, fruitless to a great extent. And so I wanted to start with that first statement here. Fear exists only in the presence of consequences. I don't know if I heard you say that or if I saw you write it, but that was apparent to me that I was fearing a lot of things because I was ultimately afraid of the consequence. And often that consequence was I was terrified of what other people might think of me. Can you help me better understand where that comes from? Where what comes from? That, that fear of... <laughs> caring so profoundly and deeply about what other people might think. Well, it's the it's it's the it's the world that a human being builds without knowing that he builds it because it's the only world he knows. And it's it he he creates he lives in the larger world and then he creates smaller worlds out of the larger world. And the smaller worlds are in the form of relationship in the form of image and in the form of trying to please others and trying to um, impress others and gain favor and all of these things. And um, it, it, it's critical for me to say at this juncture that none of those things are wrong. None of those things are good. It's, they are just a, a side effect and a consequence of being worldly. Um, and any attempt, actually, 
to fix those things just leads you more and further and further into worldliness. And the further and further you get into worldliness, the further and further you drift out to sea. So it doesn't really matter what the detail is. Um, it, a worldly life is all suffering. Uh, it's all misery. It, you can paint it however you like. You can put on a smile and say you're happy with your circumstances or you have a lot to be thankful for and have a gratitude journal and all this nonsense if you wish. Um, but it's it's just trying to find a pocket of air within a uh, a state of drowning. And and once again, there's nothing wrong with that. But whatever issue you choose is simply a detailed form of suffering um, because one has become worldly and one has therefore uh, has respect and uh, for the world and values the world. And therefore, he values all the things that are said within it by its uh, spiritualists and its self-helpists and its minions and its experts. And he imbibes that and he reads books and he listens to media and he hears interviews and he uh, listens to talks and he imbibes all of that information and he goes off upon the journey of what are fundamentally lies. And they're not necessarily intentional lies. In fact, I don't believe that most people are out to hurt people. I don't believe that at all. I believe that most people are trying to help people. Most so-called experts are trying to do good for their fellow man. I firmly believe that. Um, but the effect remains that it's still all lies. And and when I say it's lies, I mean that's no one should ever believe me on that. That's something that they have to they they can examine for themselves. Because if they believe me and say well, you're saying it's a lie, so then give me the truth, then it's, then it's going to be everything being dependent upon what I say. And that has no relevance. Everything, everything comes down to realizations for oneself. I, I was one of those liars without knowing that I was, right? In my late 20s, I had sort of climbed the corporate ladder and achieved some material success after growing up really poor. And I, I thought that would complete me, make me happy, et cetera. And obviously, as you've already illuminated here, it, it did the opposite. And so I, I at first renounced the things, the material success, shunned the accomplishments, the achievements. And I realized in a, in a perverse way that sort of tethered me to those things. I think of it as a, a sort of layer cake of consumerism. And it's possible to trade in material consumerism for other forms of consumerism, whether that's experience consumerism or spirituality consumerism. You know, we can get rid of our fancy things and then become consumers of meditation or consumers of some other sort of dogma, right? but also consumers of prescriptions. And you've written rather eloquently, and I think this is the thing that is most difficult to grasp at first, but I, I think as soon as people, as soon as I got over this hurdle of prescriptions, it, it was wildly helpful. So can we talk about the problem with 
what is a prescription when, in the sense of how you use it? And what is the problem? Prescriptions are how-tos, hacks, five-step plans, methods, techniques. These are the only currency that exists in the world today um, from the domains of the most spiritual and uh, spiritual and so-called uh, sacred to the domains of the outright materialistic and worldly. Uh, it's literally the only thing that exists. There is no such thing as a domain or an expert or a discipline or a teaching or a book or anything that exists anywhere in this on this planet that is that is not a prescription whose philosophy is not founded entirely and solely and exclusively upon prescriptions. Everyone has been conditioned into, everyone has been brainwashed. And the brainwashing is so complete that even the so-called wise men fall for it. And one of the central brainwashings is the idea of how-to. And it is so complete that no one would even think to question it. I mean, how, what else are you going to ask but how to? Uh, you, you want to become happy? Well, how do I become happy? You want to become a success? Well, how do I become a success? You want to make money? Well, how do I make money? How do I do this and how do I do that? And therefore, uh, when, the, when the demand is there, the supply is created and they both feed each other. So it's the blind leading the blind. Uh, you can examine in your own life uh, that if everything, forget everything, if anything was based upon a how-to, then all you would need to do is find out who became a success, read their book, and then you would become equally a success. And uh, as far as I can tell, that doesn't really happen. Uh, so nothing is this, this is how I did it, and you follow these five steps. I mean, you can do that for mechanical things. You know, you can turn on a computer, and you can maybe uh, open and close you know, Venetian blinds, you can, there's a how-to to that. Um, things that are mechanical, uh, things that really don't mean much, but things that are um, in anything towards a realm of art, anything towards a realm of anything significant or lasting um, or real, there's no how-to. And, and, and there's, there's no point in trying to beat that drum in the same way that there's no point in beating any drum about anything that I write about. The most futile thing on earth is to attempt to convince someone. And the reason that people do is because the experts gain joy from others um, liking what they say. And they, and just like you said earlier, everyone likes to be liked. So if you give an how-to and someone says, thank you, that helped me, it gives you the ego of the helper. And therefore, that makes you feel good. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no evil in that. Um, it is simply, that's just the way that human beings have learned to live. This is one of their pleasure chases. I want to help. I want so-and-so to like me. I want so-and-so to give me applause and celebrate me. And I feel good when I tell so-and-so that they should do this and that, and they go do and this and that. Um, it gives me a feeling of authority, and it gives them a feeling of following me. And all of these, all of, all of these layers upon layers 
of, of emotional stuff. Um, once again, none of which is a crime, none of which is evil, um, but it's, it, it, it is all pie in the sky. So, you know, how many books have been written about happiness? How many, how many books have been written about peace and making money and uh, conflict and relationship? And, I mean, you name the topic, uh, there's probably 70,000 books on everything. Uh, so, first of all, if, if there's millions of books, just, I mean, a, a, a decisive, maybe a, a discriminating mind might look at that just from a very um, bird's eye view and say, wait a minute, if books really worked, then why are there millions of them? There should have just been one book and then it would have worked. Or, okay, fine, two. <laughs> okay, fine, five. Okay, fine, 25. Okay, fine, 200. All right, fine, 2,000. I mean, how long? I mean, if it worked, then, so even if you knew nothing about nothing, then you could just based upon kindergarten logic, if something really worked, then it shouldn't keep needing to be done. So the very fact that there's millions and millions of a thing, that means it doesn't work. Not that it's wrong and not that it's good and bad, not that I believe, not that you believe. It's, if there was millions, then, the, then it doesn't work. Then, then you would have to buy into the logic and you're free to do so that, okay, fine, there's 10 million of them. They don't work, but maybe the 10 million and first might bring something. And that's fine. You can, you can pursue that logic if you wish. I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Um, it, it's, those are just evidences for the fact that all of these hacks and methods and techniques and how-tos and five-step plans, they're, they're, just, they're just tabloids. They're just things to, they're just content creation, just to keep the content coming. Uh, they're nothing real there. It's all for the masses, therefore it's for nobody. It's all for the unserious, that's for it, therefore it's for nobody. It's all for the insincere, therefore it's for nobody. It's all for the entertainment seekers, therefore it's for nobody. So, it, it, and once again, no one should believe a single word that I say. Just examine your own life, because you are most certainly a victim of prescriptions. Everyone is. By examining my own life, I figured out that a lot of it was, it was misery all the way down, right? And it was easy to mask. It was, either, it was easy to ignore via distraction or entertainment. And as you said, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. And there's nothing wrong with prescriptions as well. Uh, a few days ago, I had to reset a Wi-Fi router and I pulled out the manual, a book, and it helped me with the how-to steps of restoring the factory settings, right? But if I were inventing Wi-Fi, there would be no how-to for that. And I don't like to get bogged down in definitions. That's something I've learned from you, especially from when people talk to you. They're often asking a question about like, what does it mean to pursue that or what does the truth mean and and i see that we get stuck quite often 
on, we almost trip over other people's interpretation. So I'm going to read some more from that email I sent you because I think it will open up a conversation about some fairly sincere questions. With each month that passed, a new awareness followed, not always from your words, but invariably through the door you had opened. And here were some of those realizations. Excitement is an addiction. I, um, I didn't realize how addicted I was to excitement. And we can call it something else. We don't need to define it, but pleasure chasing, um, the pursuit of happiness, I think would be the way to veil it in a culturally virtuous way. The next uh, insight, or uh, yeah, the next insight here is betterment is a cultural disease. This one was a big one for me because... Throughout my 20s, I climbed the corporate ladder, made better money, purchased better things. But along the way, fundamentally, my life didn't get better. And then I thought I would better my life by getting rid of the things, right? And it was another sort of pursuit of, of betterment. And as soon as I realized that there was nothing to make better. Now, sure, there are some circumstances that you can, quote unquote, improve. But as soon as one simply seeks to improve, grow, it seems that it, it creates more misery in the pursuit itself creates misery. And so, Kapil, can we talk a bit about excitement and this disease of betterment? You know, one of the things about the truth, which makes it unpalatable for most, is the fact that there are so many sacred cows and everything is destroyed. And at the end of the day, nothing is left and no one likes to live with nothing. So at, at some point, a person really comes to the point where he either he says it verbally or most likely not. Usually it's, you know, uh, mentally to himself, like, well, we're going to get rid of everything? Like nothing is nothing is worthwhile then? You're talking to me even getting better as a human being, even that you're going to take away? So like everything, the reason that it's seen as being taken away is because it was falsely built to begin with. So all of these things of, I mean, it's easy for people to see that betterment in the form of making more money won't make you happy. Um, that, that's, that's easy for people to see. But if you say betterment in the form of changing yourself, self-improvement, self-development, growth, all of these things, they're a farce. Well, that's, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge leap because that's sacred. What do you mean getting better as a human being is, uh, is nonsense. Um, the, and that's why it isn't about convincing anyone. I don't care who gets it doesn't get it i don't i don't i don't get any i don't get any um good feeling if 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 people agree or uh, if they follow the path of truth i mean that's great for them i don't get anything from it so i don't care so i'm not here to get applause and i'm not i'm not here for to get disciples and i'm not here to start any movement i don't care um i i'm just interested what 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 I adore and am devoted to, not because it's good, I don't care about goodness, 
I'm just devoted to, to exploring truth, reality. What is the truth behind things? And well, that's not a good thing either. I just am. I don't apologize for it, nor do I celebrate it. That's just who I am. And someone else is someone else. And there's no, there's no better or worse than someone else. So, um, so the idea of self-improvement, it's all a farce. It's all change this, change that, change your behavior. Make sure you talk this way. Don't talk that way. Make sure you say this. They don't work. Like, forget whether you philosophically believe it or not. That's, that's a separate. It doesn't work. So you can, you'll be told that, oh, go talk, you know, go talk nicely to your enemy. And that's fine as long as you're willing to get kicked in the face. Because when you do that and you get kicked twice in the face, then you'll come back and say, oh, well, I, I did what I was told. It didn't work. Well, see, nothing is partial. Everything is whole, right? So unless you're willing to go all the way, nothing is real. And so all of these things are just bits and pieces of things. It's like walking in in the middle of a conversation, right? Uh, if so-and-so says this, make sure you respond with a smile and make sure that you improve your body language and make sure that you have good morning routines uh, because so-and-so had good morning routines. I'll give you a thousand guys who wake up at noon, and and are multi-billionaires and who are crazy successful, okay? So don't give me the ice bath and the morning routine and the I wake up at this and I go to sleep at this. Now, if someone does, they do. Great. But that isn't a something to do. Now, if you, if, if you happen to come up upon that concept and it resonates with you and you just enjoy it. You enjoy getting up early in the morning. It makes you feel X and Y and you enjoy going to bed at night because the good night sleep and then getting up early in the morning makes you feel refreshed. Fantastic. That's your own personal experimentation, which led to that. Great. I mean, I, I really mean that. That's great. But there's no like, you should do this. This is good for you. If you do this, then you'll get that. Let me tell you right now, no, you won't. It is an absolute lie. Anything which comes as a certainty that if you do this, you will get that. It's a complete trap. Is there the odd person to whom that might luck out and happen to? Sure. But nothing which deserves being written in a book. So, I mean, everything is nonlinear. Nothing is a straight line. Nothing is, these are the five steps. And you can improve till the cows come home. At the end of the day, how you feel within yourself does not depend upon your self-improvement. Because the world is still going to be the world. And the situations that you experience are still going to be the situations that you experience. And you can bite your tongue and you can, you know, put tape on your mouth, and you can wait your 10 seconds before you respond, and all these stupid, idiotic, moronic, silly, juvenile, kindergarten things you can do if you wish, but they're not real. They're not for someone who wants to get to the truth behind things, not that someone should. And that's why I say, I don't think most people should stop looking at spirituality or religion or self-help or self-development or go to the motivational speakers or the experts. And I don't think they should because, because 
they're looking for entertainment anyways. So if you're looking for entertainment, you may as well may as well go to the self-improvement version of entertainment rather than going to a bar. That's far more fruitful. So there you could see some benefit on a relativistic scale. But it all depends what you're looking for. And uh, so I don't, I don't say that no one should meditate. You can if you wish. I don't think that no one should do mindfulness. You can if you wish. One has to understand that when they come into my domain, what they're coming into, they're coming into a very biased place. And my bias is holistically and directly towards ultimateness, truth, world-class, reality, the whole thing, the peak of Everest, the ultimate of the ultimate, the ultimate possibility of a human organism. That's where, that's everything I talk about is from there. So I don't have any space or any interest or I make no room for commoners who seek common things, who seek a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's perfectly fine. But that's not what I'm interested in. I don't care about that. And so therefore, could you meditate and get something out of it? Yes, you can. If you meditate, you can get some peace for 20 minutes a day. Sure. You commit any crimes? Of course not. You know, that's not a crime. So, but I'm looking at everything from Buddhahood. I'm looking at everything from the ultimate possibility of a human being, both in in profession, in skill development, in learning, um, in 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 life, in uh, in internal freedom, everything. The ultimate is the only thing which interests me. I'm not interested in in the low in the middle of the road. I'm not interested in dabbling. Um, so that's where a disconnect can happen if someone might think that I think meditation is somehow like this bad thing and and I and I don't none of those things are bad it just depends what you're looking for and who you are when you speak of the ultimate are you saying that it's possible to be the ultimate within we're not just talking about Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan here, right? We're, it's, no, I mean those are those are those are among the ultimate in professions, right? In 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 one's craft, right? A, you know, a Picasso or a Rembrandt, right, or a Michelangelo, or um, and then there's the ultimate in life, like a Jesus or a Buddha. You know, so those are those are a Jesus or a Buddha is the tip of the top right like that's godhood yeah it's okay to me that interests me right i i don't i don't care about a little bit so that's what i mean by the ultimate the highest possibility that's that af, that even can be conceived because to me a human life isn't worth anything less but i'm not here to convince anyone of that, that they should do that and, and they should view their life that way. And because once again, I don't care, but I'm interested in it. Therefore, that's everything that I do is structured around that.
you gave me a really nice gift a moment ago when you talked about not getting anything, not just not needing anything from other people, as in, I really need my work to resonate or I need them to understand me, which is still something I struggle with quite a bit. It's I don't mind what you say about me at this point, but I mind if you misunderstand me. But fundamentally, I don't actually get anything if you do understand me. And so whether or not a person listening to this understands, maybe they're not ready for a conversation like this, maybe they never will be, or maybe they just don't get something out of it, and that's okay. But my own needing the applause, acceptance, or just the mere understanding of someone else becomes a, a self-imposed prison of sorts. It's a, it's a type of attachment that I've formed. And I'm just realizing that now. Can you help me better understand that? Well, I mean, it seems like you do. I mean, there's, the masses seem, not seem, the masses have been placed at the center of everything. And that's why everything is ruined. It's because the masses seek the teachings, the teachings are all dumbed down and watered down into garbage. So, like, even if you seek mass applause, what for? Who's out there? Well, why, why do you want the applause for the masses? Who are they? I mean, if someone is truly special and rare, um, then that even shouldn't be, not, not, not should, but that, there's no point in even seeking applause for him. It, it would be maybe learning from him. If the guy is truly rare and generational and one of a kind to see what things he might, what insights he might have gained, not so that you can copy them, uh, but so that you can, uh, see what things he might have learned that you could, you know, view in your own way that might may or may not be be a benefit to you. Um, but what what is this? What what like? Uh, I don't know what. Yes, I do know what can be gotten from mass appeal. Uh, it's you know basically you feel good that people like you, and I understand that, and and I. I can appreciate that. I get that. Um, but but I suppose it really comes down to um, how much you really get from that, number one. No, not ultimately, but what you, just wherever you are, you are. What you feel, if, like if, you, if, if it really gives you a lot of good feeling, as it usually does, so be it. And um, how, for how long, for how many years, does that good feeling continue to be good feeling? And if it is, then then it is. I mean, there's no such thing as you shouldn't, right? Um, but even if you intellectually say that I shouldn't get good feeling from being liked, uh, that doesn't go anywhere. If you do, you do. Uh, once again, everyone's in a different place. And I guess the point here is that all of the prescriptions and all of the information and all of the stuff that's out there that's released in the form of books and lectures and all that 
it, it basically is founded upon wanting to be liked. And so it's one thing if it's an innocent thing that one wants to be liked, but it's something else if that innocent thing of wanting to be like, liked spawns more and more jargon and nonsense just to put out more things so that one can be liked. And at the end of the day, it's all it is. It's all just pie in the sky. Because um, how many millions are practicing meditations? You know any Buddhas? Hmm. <laughs> how many millions are practicing mindfulness? You know any Buddhas? How many people are talking about the words of Christ and the words of Christ are magnificent? They're, 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 I mean, that guy spoke truth. But you see any Jesus is walking around? Hmm. So how many copies of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path are on every shelf, um, and yet you don't see any Buddhas? That's interesting, isn't it? So obviously, it wasn't the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path which created the Buddha to begin with, and so if it didn't create him to begin with, why in the world would it create him later on? So you can't cliff notes a Buddha. You can't cliff notes a Jesus. And you can't cliff notes any truth. You can only cliff notes nonsense. And in the cliffing, it becomes nonsense. And it's for those who seek nonsense. Another sacred cow, and I wrote about this in my email to you. One of the truths that I learned, and I was really allergic to learning this one because it is so sacred. Hope is the measure of future regrets. Hope is thought of as something that can only be good. But it, maybe that's just a, a dressed up way of saying expectation or even a chase of sorts. What, uh, what, what is your understanding of hope? It's just more pie in the sky. It's one, just because you hope for something doesn't mean it's going to happen. Now, if you, if you set the things in place for it to happen, then you set them in place. But hope has nothing to do with anything. What's hope going to do? You hoping for something doesn't make it any more likely of it becoming true. So everyone is conditioned to like things that are flowery and glee and nice and have a nice scent and pretty words and they look good on the rectangular shape of a bumper sticker and they're just nice. And that's fine. Once again, no evil. But it's just pie in the sky. It's just it's just a bunch of niceties. Hope for this. Be kind. Be compassionate. Be this. Be that. As if you walk around with 95 switches and you forgot to turn them on. And now turn on the hope switch and then the compassion switch and then the <laughs> kindness switch. Oh, I forgot to turn. It's like you're full of, it's like you're a, a breaker box. And oh, I forgot to, oh, I forgot. I'm glad you reminded me. Turn the kindness. I left that one off last night. It's juvenile. If things worked that way, that someone says, be hopeful and be kind and be compassionate, 
then everybody would be hopeful, kind, and compassionate. And there would be no policemen, and there would be no courtrooms. He would just say, did you do that? And the guy would say, yes, I stole all this and that. Okay, then you're in jail. Thank you very much. Okay. There's no reason for lawyers and, and no room for anything, right? If all those things worked, then there'd be no reason for anything. Everything would be nice, and he'd be compassionate to you, and you'd be mindful to him, and he'd be, it's, it's just fairy tales, and it's just fairy tales for adults. That's, that's all it is. It's instead of cartoon characters, they implant real flesh and blood human beings. You know, instead of instead of having diagrams in the in the pop out picture books, they just put it in paragraph form. It's just tabloids and fairy tales because it sounds nice and everyone wants to hear nice things and do nice things, and that's fine. Never will you hear me say that you shouldn't do that. It's, but it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the fact that it's pie in the sky, but people want pie in the sky. In my own life, I've noticed hope often getting in the way. It's almost a, a clutter of sorts. I remember when I used to play basketball back in high school, you, you would hope that you make the free throw, right? But you hope so much that you act, it actually impedes your ability to make the free throw. But I think that happens that permeates a bunch of other areas in my life. I hope this person likes me. I hope I can accomplish this. I hope I get this award or reward. Hoping for the applause makes the applause much less worthwhile. It, it almost, it's like putting a wet blanket on it. If, you, if I need it, and then get it, then it's simply fulfilling the, the expectation that I had. And so I wanted to pivot to beliefs because what I realized pretty quickly when I stumbled across your words, Capio, is that I had a whole lot of beliefs about the world and I pretended as though those were the truth because they felt so real to me. My beliefs must be true, right? Otherwise, why would I have them as a belief? And over the last couple of years, I've gotten really good at letting go of beliefs. Setting them down is probably a way to talk about it. But I do find myself picking them up again and again. And can you help me understand what's behind that? Well, you like anything that's yours. Mm. I mean, if, if something, if either something is true or it's not true, what does it matter what you believe? What does it matter what your opinion is? Of, of what value is that? aside from trying to win some idiotic conversation at some idiotic party with a bunch of idiots talking idiocy. Who cares what you believe? Of, of, of what, what, what two cents does it matter what your opinion is? And, and, and once again, because everyone's conditioned, they're going to think that I, I mean that you should be mindful of others' opinions. No, I'm saying others' opinions are stupid too. Everyone's stupid. 
they're all stupid. Either something is true or it's not true. What you believe and what you opine, who cares? You can believe that the sun rises in the north. Okay, you're welcome to believe that once again. No evil. So what? Okay, good for you. Your opinion is that the moon is purple with green stripes. Great. Good for you. What does that have to do with reality? So then it just comes down to, are you more interested in opinion and belief? Or are you more interested in reality and truth? And there's no way that anyone is not going to hear the fact or the, the notion that I'm implying something, that I'm implying that you should be interested in reality and truth. And that's where my stuff differs. I don't imply anything. Once again, I don't care. It is simply, I can't say a single thing without there being a feeling that I'm giving a hidden, I, I, I'm leading you toward doing something. And, and the reason that that happens is because Every single human being that you speak to in your entire life, every single book that you read in your entire life, absolutely is trying to lead you somewhere, has a message for you, has something for you to get, has a take-home message. I don't have any message. I don't care if you look for truth or you care for belief. I am just simply making the absolute fact statement with no judgment, no leading, no implication that are, if you are more interested in belief and, and opinion, then that's what you will value. And if you're more interested in reality and truth, that's what you, are, that's what you will value. What, what you will value. And you shouldn't be more interested in one or the other. You are whatever you are. Personally, I'm interested in ceasing the suffering. Now, a lot of that suffering is psychological. As I mentioned in my email to you, I've gone through some, a bit of a health crisis the last four years. And so there's actual physical suffering there, but it's always amplified by the mental anguish and the hopes and, of course, the expectations of fixes, cures, literal prescriptions. Uh, in the the pharmaceutical sense. And I found that quite often those things block the truth. But before we discuss truth, because I know we could spend some time on that, sussing that out, I wanted to circle back with the beliefs thing because you just helped me understand that my beliefs are tethered to an opinion, whatever else you want to call it. It's tethered to self-righteousness in a way. The needing to be right, which I think ties somewhere into the need for applause, the need for understanding. I need other people to understand me. There's a well, let me ask you, does it appear that there's often a self-righteousness component there? I mean, you mentioned self-righteousness. You know, that's some made-up word 
the implication meaning, it, first of all, it's made up, and second of all, it's made up in a negative connotation. Um, there's no, what self-righteousness, as if that's a some kind of bad thing to avoid, you know, you shouldn't be self-righteous. Hmm. Um, it, it's, like I said, what if it's because it's yours, you like it. Yeah, and yet I, I, that's the thing I'm understanding is I don't actually like the thing that I thought I liked. I think it's ugly now that I see, you know, so you step back and you know, sort of see yourself in the, in the mirror and realize, oh, everything's out of place. And in a way you've held up that mirror and helped me see that I don't, I don't like the self-righteousness that I see in myself. People often use the word ego in the same thing as though that is a bad thing and one then should shun the ego. But if I'm being frank, I don't entirely understand what the ego is. Uh, it seems to me the ego is merely the, the self-righteous self. I don't know. Do you have a question? How does the ego or my ego block me from truth? I mean, does it help you? I mean, if you find that, like, I could say that it blocks you because of X, Y, and Z. Hmm. That would just be intellectual. It's only going to matter to you if it if it hits you at home. So if it if something hits you at home, and if it hits you hard enough, then you'll consider doing something about it. If it doesn't, it's just more self improvement pie in the sky. Can we talk a bit about truth? The thing that I've learned is there are, from you, is there are universal truths and there are, what would you call them, situational truths, perhaps? When you're speaking about the truth, you obviously wrote a whole book about it, you're not just talking about facts. There's a lot of facts on Wikipedia, but maybe not a whole lot of truth there. Can you expand yeah, when you on... To, when you what, try to define things, things get really murky, intellectual, and scholarly, and academic, and therefore they go, they really disintegrate. Um, everything is a truth. The fact that someone's feeling a certain way, there's a truth behind that. If someone wants to get to become a success in X, there's a truth behind that. If there's, if someone wants to open a particular door, there is a key which will fit that lock. And none of those things have anything to do with belief or opinion or following anybody else. There's just the truth. And the truth is the most practical thing there is because it's the only thing there is. Everything else is a lie. There's a definition for you. If it isn't truth, it's a lie. <laughs> So everything has a truth. There are universal truths, and then every situation has a truth. One may wish to find it. One may wish not to. One may desire it on a holistic scale. One may not. Those are all personal things. But truth is the only thing there is. If one is on the side of truth, He's on the winning side in anything. I went through a, a slow 
you know, it, it's there's a the, the wonderful story of the Buddha, especially in the beginning, which everyone seems to omit because it doesn't serve the overall narrative. Um, but as usual, most human beings miss the essence, and they they like all the the incense and the sounds and the fancy stuff. Um, so it it just it it illustrates and provides evidence for so many things in the precise area in which those things are being touted. So Buddha goes to the forest and he meets the ascetics. And the ascetics have been living in the forest for years. And they have been meditating and eating one grain of rice and all of these austerities in order to become enlightened. Well, Buddha goes there, and obviously, he doesn't know. He becomes a student, so he asks a how-to. So, that is no different than any worldly material thing which goes on in modern society. So, he sits down, and they tell him, well, you have to do this and that, and eat one grain of rice per day, and drink your own urine, and sit in meditation for 20 hours a day, and it's okay. Shave your head, great. So he does all that. And six or seven years pass, and he says, I I have eaten one grain of rice a day, and I've drank my own urine, and I've sat underneath in the rain and meditated for 20 hours a day, and now I am, I am emaciated and on the verge of death, and I am no closer to wisdom than I was when I left my father's house. And then he just gets up and he says, the hell with all this crap. And he goes off on his own. And he becomes enlightened. By leaving behind all the methods. By leaving behind all the teachers, so-called. By leaving behind all the ways. And all the stuff. Now, in, the very, in, that, in that very domain, all this stuff comes out about meditation. If anything came out of the Buddha's story, it should be, never meditate. <laughs> because that's what caused his failure. So you think that with your 20 minutes of fancy meditation on your yoga mat and your blue and yellow, you know, yoga clothes, um, that your your 20 minutes a day is going to take you somewhere. And this guy meditated 20, 24 hours a day for six or seven years and ate a grain of rice and drank his own urine and he didn't get anywhere, but you will. So it's all, once again, it's all right there, right in front of you. It doesn't work. And when he came back and he became enlightened and he came back and he saw the ascetics, he had become a Buddha. And the ascetics were still ascetics. Yeah, that's a perfect place to end this. I'm grateful for your time today. Thanks for spending it with us. Sure, thanks. Welcome back to the Minimalist's Private Podcast. What a conversation, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah, that was um that was quite a conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
You know what? You guys got a question for me or something? <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. It was so good. I um I wanted to be thoughtful with my discussion. And I'll be frank, like it's I generally don't get nervous before an interview. And I started to before we recorded this one. Mm. Hmm. But then by the time I heard him talk, mm. I was like, oh yeah, no. This is fine. Mm-hmm. There was no, but I still wanted to be thoughtful. Now we're going to scrap most of our simple living segments for this episode. Don't worry. They'll be back next episode. We'll have a home tour. We're actually going to jump into Ryan's home on the next episode and um, all the other obsolete objects, impulse purchases, all that fun stuff. And we're of course going to have your questions that we are answering on the next episode. I still wanted to do a more about less segment where we read something. This was Ryan's idea because I sent him this discourse from Capil and it's called the truth of no prescriptions. Hmm. Let's read it and then we'll talk about it. This is a great place to start. The topic of prescriptions is not one that the world has come to know. It has been revealed, but to an infinitesimal few And even those to whom it has been revealed have barely scratched the surface of understanding it. No prescriptions move so violently and uncompromisingly against everything that a man has ever known that it incapacitates him. No prescriptions is driving the wrong way upon a highway at a hundred miles an hour. No prescriptions is walking on one's hands while staring into a mirror attached to one's forehead. He does not know where to go from there. For every single thing in his entire life has been about method, technique, and how. Without this, he cannot so much as open his mouth. For what can he possibly ask? I want to pause on that for a moment. I've noticed that when Kapil is doing interviews with other people, that he rarely does them. But even then, people are always asking, how? Mm. How do I quiet my mind? Mm -hmm. How do I let go of prescriptions? (laughs) (laughs) And it's natural. This isn't a judgment. It is merely showcasing Mm -hmm. how how how-tos, prescriptions, techniques, methods have permeated the fabric of our society. And we feel stuck as though everything has a manual. It's helpful sometimes. When Ryan and I moved to Montana, it was negative 26 degrees. We looked up a video how to keep a fire going at night. Hmm. Because I knew how to start a fire, but I also needed some sort of technique to make that happen. Hmm. And that's not what Kapil is talking about here. We're not talking about how to repair a bicycle, how to keep a fire going, or how to reset your Wi-Fi router. What he's talking about is fundamentally, even if you look at the greats and you literally dissected everything, if you take a player like Michael Jordan and you even told Michael Jordan to follow the recipe that Michael Jordan followed and you rewound the clock, even he wouldn't have success with that recipe because there's something else there other than the recipe. It reminds me of when we talk about, and Ryan, you and I have talked about this for a while. We don't write 
essays that are about the 67 ways to declutter your closet. Because that's a how-to. And that can be really helpful to someone. Mm, Sure. How to declutter your closet. But if you don't understand the why to, if you don't understand why you're decluttering your closet, then maybe decluttering your closet, simply trashing everything in there, is going to bring more misery to your life. Mm. If you think you're supposed to declutter your closet, if you think you're supposed to get rid of your stuff, maybe that causes increased misery in your own life. And so prescriptions often lead to misery when they think they're going to, when we think they're going to improve our lives. Mm. Hmm. I mean, I, I, I could, I definitely have thoughts. Do you want to continue reading the essay or? Yeah, sure. Well, can yeah, I, let's do that. Can I comment first on what you said? Uh, I, I think it's the, the, the habit you pointed out of, of asking for the how-to when trying to live a prescriptionless life. It, it also reveals just how heavily we're conditioned to respond to what other people are saying in terms of the agenda we attribute to them right? Rather than listening to what is being said. So when he's talking about this prescriptionless life, it's easy to assume that he has an agenda to get us to live a prescriptionless life because that's the morally superior way to live, but that's not the agenda. There's just an observation and an articulation of what is being observed. And then you can consider that, you can evaluate that, you can analyze that, you can play with it, you can just be and do nothing with it, right? It's all open for, for, uh, for possibility. Mm. The other thing too is um, you talked about how prescriptions are useful when you're basically playing finite games. I think he used the language of like mechanical processes. If, I, if I'm building my chest from Ikea, I want the prescription on how to do that efficiently, right? But how do you even get to the point of saying, I need this piece of furniture from Ikea and assembling it, buying it is worth my time. You get there by something that doesn't come from a prescription. And if you do get there by a prescription, well, then how do you, how do you get there? At some point, if you push things for far, far, as far back as they can go, you arrive at these choices we're making that come from a prescriptionless space mm. because ultimately you value things because maybe it makes you come alive or it makes you feel good. And then in in the quest to make this or that happen, we subscribe to all these prescriptions and then we forget that the whole game, by nature of it being a game, is made up from a space that isn't prescribed. And that's an interesting thing to consider. Mm. I'm going to return to the discourse here. This is the only, This is only the beginning. The subtlety of prescriptions has not been understood by anyone. Those who sit confused and dazed by no prescriptions have only seen the headline. They do not yet know the subtlety of this truth. They do not realize that even a shadow, a hint, a suggestion, a nudge, or the seed of a seed of a seed of prescription destroys all possibility of arrival. One may say, as may be said about all that lies in the domain of truth, that it is simply too much, that it is too heavy, too difficult, too complex, too opposite, counter, and violently contrary. And Ryan, I think that's what you pick up here is there's almost a 
I say violence in quotes. I don't mean it literally, obviously, mm-hmm. and neither does Kapil, I don't think. Mm. Violently contrary. Mm. And mm. violent in the sense that I felt like someone was, when I first stumbled into his work, it was him and Anthony DeMello. That was really this gateway for me. I felt like I was being shook mm-hmm. intellectually because my intellect couldn't get me out of any of the problems that I was having. In fact, it was causing its own problem. Mm. The, oh, that's fascinating. It's almost like trying to understand was the problem and the solution was trying less and less to understand. The, no. so, the solution was understanding that the solution is always within the problem and the problem is the solution. <laughs> uh, I, I, I dare to say Kapil would even say that trying to understand is not a problem. Trying to understand is just one way that you can go about a conversation, right? You can do something else with what a person is saying that doesn't fit the conventional mold of analyzing every word they're using, getting them to precisely define what they mean by each term they employ. There are just different ways to have a conversation, and approaching it as this analytical process where I'm going to nail down your position, that's one way. That's not a problem, but that's just one way to play. Mm. Yes. Return to text here. Even the few who realized the truth centuries ago likely found themselves at a fork in the road to dumb it down and ease people into it or simply speak the truth Mm. just as it is. There is too much regard given to helping people along. For let it be known that he who is lent one helping hand after another is the very one who abandons the journey. The greatest things in the universe are for but a select few. It has always been this way. A man must be willing to come to truth. Truth has neither the inclination nor the incentive to come to him. There's an irony in this because truth showed up at my doorstep, so to speak, a bunch of times before I was ready for it. Mm. I remember being exposed to Alan Watts in my 20s or picking up uh, Eckhart Tolle's book and just dismissing it, being snarky about it even. Mm. (laughs) Oh, the power of now. Okay. Right. Right. But of course, as Kapil would say, like, what goes wrong is we prescriptionize even that. Yeah. Just be. Just live in the moment. Three steps to live in the moment. It's like, <laughs> oh my God. Hey, brother, you need to slow down and just be a little bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Quit all that non-being over there. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes another should, yeah. right? Another prescription. Yeah. And even this, when you hear it at first, is Oh, look, Kapil is prescribing no prescriptions. It feels that way because we are so conditioned. Mm-hmm. But when you hear him speak, you can find a bunch of free videos of his like on YouTube. He hosts these clubhouse or Twitter space conversations and he answers people's questions there. And he seems fairly brutal sometimes. In fact, he won't even respond to some people. He'll just hang up and move on to the next person. Mm. And at first, that simultaneously turned me off. But it also... It piqued my curiosity in a way where I was like, huh, that's fascinating. Mm. He's not being mean to them, but he's also not going out of his way to be liked. Yeah. And that, as I talked to him about earlier, is a problem of mine. 
it's fine to be liked. I like uh, it's fine to be liked. I like being liked. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I need to be liked, mm. it becomes a prison. Yeah, it becomes an expectation. And that's what I was trying to talk to him about earlier. So maybe you all can help me walk through this because mm. I don't think I got it out perfectly, but I'm really good. I have been really great at setting down my beliefs, letting them go. It's like being on the monkey bars and you can let go all the time. Mm-hmm but I often pick up beliefs that don't really serve me. I'm able to set them down again, but in the meantime, as I hold them, they create some sort of discontent, mm. discombobulation in my own life. And they don't, they don't serve me because as he said, the truth is the truth, whether you believe it or not. If I think that the earth is flat, it doesn't matter what my belief is, Right. But also, if I believe the earth is round, it still doesn't matter what my belief is. The earth is round whether or not I believe it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, Man, I'll tell you, just, you know, just to throw this in there, um, when Kapil talks, it's very hard for me to not judge the way he's talking because it can come across as um, arrogant and it's very, at first, like that's, it was hard for me to hear him because that's all I could do was judge um, the way that I thought he was being. And I just want to, I don't know, just re- reiterate that like, he's not, he, I don't think he is arrogant. I just think he is, he's just speaking his, his truths and he doesn't care how you perceive them. And how freeing would that be mm-hmm. if literally you, never cared about what other people thought. Yeah. Now, I think of, remember the Ricky Gervais thing in uh, Afterlife where they're like, well, you don't believe in a God. Would you just go around and like kill and murder? And (laughs) and I think some people feel the same way about these concepts. Right. Is, oh, but if, uh, if I didn't care what everyone thought about me, then I would just go around being a total dick all the time. Right. I'd be me. No, you wouldn't. (laughs) Do you actually feel compelled to be mean to other people all the time? Right. And it's like, whoa, what do you think of yourself? Right. Right? Like, what do you think of yourself Mm. that you believe that if you didn't read that book this week or miss church service this week, that you go kill 20 people? Mm. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like, well, if I didn't do this, I'd be the worst. And, and, And it's not to say that there isn't room for having a healthy sense of honesty about knowing what you are capable of in terms of what you've already demonstrated to be possible in your past. But this idea that we must always hold ourselves at bay, it's kind of like the uh, psychologized version of Perch, where it's like, every year the government suspends its activities for one day and then everybody just unleashes the murderer within that deep down inside all of us just want to be committing murder every day all the time and the only thing that's stopping us is that the government has made it illegal and if they stop working for one day we would all the first thing we want to do is just murder everybody and we kind of treat ourselves like that that if we called into question some of the conventional beliefs and practices that we use to create order mm-hmm. that, well, the first thing we do is just create a whole bunch of chaos. But maybe, but maybe something else will be possible. And maybe the only way you get to interesting discoveries is by saying, all right, I know I've leaned on this my whole life and I know what this gives me, but I'm going to make some space for something that I don't already know. 
But what's going to happen? Well, it can't be discovery if I have an answer to that. Mm -hmm. Speaking of making space, what did you think about some of those pregnant pauses throughout the conversation? (laughs) Man, I, I loved that. I loved it because I love the fact that you didn't save space. I mean, not, not save space, that you didn't save face. Um, I think especially at that moment where he's like, is there a question there? If we were in third grade, man, you, you know, the whole class would have been like, ooh, yeah, right. dang. Right. And sometimes we have that voice going on in our heads, right? And it's like, oh, he just owned you, bro. Like, oh, dang. And, and I'm glad you didn't make a move like, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, Capil, I had a question. And I'm glad you didn't, you know, try to struggle out of it. You just accepted the moment for what it was like, oh, I did just say something that wasn't a question and he's not obligated to do anything with that. And this is a habit that I have. And whenever I do this, typically the habit works out, but this guy just created a pattern interrupt in my experience. Mm -hmm. He did something that my co-host and my guest typically don't do. Mm -hmm. He responded to a statement by saying, is there a question? He didn't really care to expound on your statement. He didn't feel obligated or pressured to entertain the audience by helping you out. Just, is there a question there? <laughs> and you took it, man. You took it. You sat there with the silence until a question came to you and you didn't feel like, oh, but I'm breaking the rule of entertainment. I've let five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 mm. seconds. That was just so beautiful because it was an honest, authentic moment. And I think it represented that that vulnerable transparency with which you engaged him the entire time. That was my favorite moment. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was impressed that Kapil, um, w- w- during the really, really long pause, I, I don't know, it felt like five minutes was probably more like 30 seconds. Um, but I thought he was going to be like, are you still there? But he was giving as much space to it as you were. And he was allowing, um, yeah, he was allowing the very thoughtful response. Um, Man, let's get into some of the, the the stuff that it's not that I disagree with it, um, but you know I, I I guess he kept calling things um, what are the words nonsensical, mm-hmm. uh, childish. You're um, challenged by these stupid juvenile. Yes, yeah, stupid juvenile. Yeah, yeah, moronic. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that I'm I feel challenged, but Kapil does this thing where he just kind of he tears things down. He tears concepts down. He tears ideas down and he doesn't rebuild anything. Mm. And I think that is the uncomfortable thing with Kapil is, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you could be like, Oh, I love to help people. Well, that's stupid. It's like, Oh, okay. Well then what isn't, what isn't stupid? Well, what isn't stupid is whatever you do that adds value to your life. But I like to help people. I mean, it's like this, it's, it's very, um, it can be discombobulating. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, why I wanted to um, read this, this essay of his uh, and talk about it because he tears down the idea of prescriptions, but he doesn't build it back up with anything. And I think that's probably the, the thing that took me the, the hardest to get past was, was the not building back up of, of anything. Well, two problems here. One is that, that presupposes that something should be built back up, right? Mm-hmm. And again, that's our our conditioning. Mm-hmm. But then also, maybe it's not his job to build it back up. Because, you know, the house that I live in now, it was torn down to the studs. And someone came in to tear that house down. Mm-hmm. 
someone else came in to build it back up. Yeah. And I found in my own life, you're right. Kapil didn't help me rebuild anything. He helped me tear it down. Mm -hmm. He helped me tear down the ideologies. He helped me tear down the beliefs, the self-righteousness, the hope, the expectations that were leading to misery for me. And I am the one who had to build it back up. I didn't have a prescription on how to build it back up. The building happened for me through a deeper understanding that there are some things I didn't get a chance to talk about in the conversation with him. But here are some of the other understandings that I came to that were in my email to him. Attachments block contentment. And I mean that all attachments. Mm. When you're a kid, you have attachments to your parents because you need it for safety, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, what happens when you reach puberty, you tend to shun your parents in some way. So, But you're not really shunning them. You're detaching. It's the one time in life where detaching makes sense. Now, there's never a prescription for that. No one ever tells kids how to detach from their parents, yep. especially the parents, because the parents have felt good because of the attachment as well. And after that, though, we pick up a whole lot of attachments. When Ryan and I climbed the corporate world in our 20s, we were attached to the success, the money, the status, the job titles, the identity that we formed in our everyday lives. This is who I am as a person. I'm the director of operations for blah, 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 whatever, Mm -hmm. right? This is who I am, as though there is some sort of self to attach to all of these things. But in in this understanding, attachment blocks contentment. Every new attachment that I would pick up would get in the way of my peace, or if you want to call it happiness, or joy, or tranquility. Certainly equanimity, right? Equanimity being the state in which everything's in balance. Mm -hmm. Every new attachment sort of put me off balance. And so I'd pick up another attachment, or I'd let go of something else, and it became this sort of vicious cycle. And it's not that I mean attachments are good or bad, But anytime I cling to anything, to anyone, to any concept, it does pull me out of this present moment. Absolutely. And there is a beauty into, you know, building, building, uh, rebuilding, whatever it is that he tears down. Because for me, what he does is he basically calls things the way they are. Like, let's go with hope or even attachment. Um, which you could say that they're maybe synonymous. You know, for me, hope, it doesn't mean that I am, you know, against hope now. What it what it means is like, oh, like hope is a tool that I have to be very careful how I use it. Because when you attach something to an outcome and you need that outcome, like, yeah, you are setting yourself up to um, be let down or or discontented. And, you know, that's that's the thing that, um, I kind of said in in our intro was what Kapil does is he helps you have a different perspective and then you either walk away like it, like with hope, you either walk away saying, oh, you know, hope isn't useful to me or you walk away and you're like, oh, I see what he's saying about hope and here's how I'm going to use it moving forward. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the thing is, is like we're all, I think we're all trying to make sense of the of the chaos that 
the world is. And we read books and we listen to podcasts and we have conversations and, uh, you know, we do all these different things to make some kind of sense of the chaotic world that we live in. Um, so, you know, it's, it's okay to use these things. Um, one of the things he said that I really disagreed with was he's like, well, you know, there are millions of books. If there was a book that was right, there would just be one book. But mm-hmm. I, I, I disagree because I would say there's not enough books because there are 8 billion people in the world. And maybe if there were 8 billion books, maybe we would have, you know, the answer for, for each individual person. Because these... well, you're talking about there is writing your own book, essentially. Yeah, exact, yeah. Exactly. And, you know, the millions of books that are out there, they are recipes, and we get to choose the ingredients that we use. So let's go with food, for example, okay? Like I'm a really, um, I'm a really, I don't want to say I'm a bad chef, but I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not a good cook. There's a few things I make really, really well, but um, I could definitely do better uh, when it comes to cooking. So if I wanted to cook, um, I would start reading recipes. I would start to figure out what flavors work with other flavors. Then you get into the wine pairings. And there is this knowledge that other people have gained and obtained that they share when it comes to cooking. And I get to decide which is for me and which is not for me. And that to me is like what the self-help books are. There's a lot of, there is a lot of BS out there, but what I look at as nonsensical when it comes to the self-help world, you know, TK might find some sense out of it and that's okay. Mm. So I, I mean, I just disagree with the, you know, if there was one, you know, if, if there was a right way to do things, then there would, there would be only one book, not millions of books. And to me, it actually just shows how important it is for us to read a, a, a diverse, um, I don't know, a diverse set of, of ingredients so we can write our own story instead of just looking at one story and being like, oh yeah, that's the one. Um, I know we look at like Jesus and we look at Buddha and he, what did he call them? The ultimate? Yes. And what's interesting is that the ultimate makes room for this nonsensical stuff. Hmm. Like Jesus went out of his way. Buddha went out of his way to like make room for people's preferences and people's uh, uh, beliefs. So, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I would say once they reached the ultimate, they were no longer encumbered by other people's beliefs. Right. And so I think that I've heard Kapil talk about this in the past that he talks about the worldly ideas. He doesn't mean then the prescription to that is mm-hmm. to go live as an ascetic or to go live in a cave or to completely withdraw from society. In fact, what he's saying is it's possible to transcend society and mm-hmm. still be within it, right? Yeah. Uh, of the world versus in the world, right? You can be in the world without being of the world. And in fact, people like Buddha or Jesus were able to be in the world without it, without the residue of lies, prescriptions, discontent, anger, expectations Mm. rubbing off on them. What what do you think about lies, TK? Is it wrong? I mean, are lies wrong? Because that's the one thing that he kept saying over and over. He never said it was bad. But it was, to me, there was a context of like, well, you can look at this stuff, but just know that it's, it's all lies. And when I hear that, it makes me think that he's saying that it's bad. But I question like, well, are lies, are lies bad? Well I, well, I think he explicitly stated that he doesn't think there's a good or bad to any of this. I, I think if, if I had to try to capture his view in, in, in my language, 
Um, I feel like if Kapil was here now, he might even challenge me on the notion that this is a view, uh, but uh, <laughs> which is what makes him him so fun. Mm-hmm. But it, but it's sort of like um, imagine if a, if a kid is watching uh, Monsters Inc. Right. And they're getting afraid of the monsters and, and they're afraid that the monsters are going to jump out of the screen and, and harm them. It, it might be helpful to let the child know that the source of their misery is a mistaken causal connection they're making between what they see on the screen and what can happen in their physical space, mm. right? Yeah. Um, and by letting the child know that this isn't real, in some sense it is real, right? There's an actual screen, there's an actual story, there are real directors and writers who are creating actual characters. But in some sense, it's not real. It's not real in the same way that I being here with you in physical space and and, and capable of making contact with you is real. And by letting them know that that's not real, they now have a new option. Like, oh, I can sit back and I can enjoy watching Monsters, Inc. I can laugh at the monsters. I can even get scared of them. Mm. But I can also let that go when I don't want to feel that fear anymore. I can leave this theater and say, okay, I'm not going to play the fear game now. I want to enjoy being with my dad or my brother or so on. And so when thinking about misery, sometimes our misery is the result of taking our games so seriously that we forget that they're only games. And that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with taking them seriously. It just means you're going to experience misery if you forget that every game has boundaries and that there are always realities outside of the game for which the rules of the game don't apply. Yeah. yeah. He called gratitude journals nonsense. And it's <laughs> funny because, um, you know, this is an ingredient. And if, for him, it is nonsense. And I get that. But in a way, the, the gratitude journal, someone keeping that saying, oh, this is what helps me be a good person. This, will, is, this is what helps me live a good life. This is what helps me appreciate the things in my life. I mean, for them maybe I could say like, yeah, they're lying to themselves. However, they believe in that lie. So there is an actual truth to someone who does a gratitude journal. And the thing about Kapil, and I'm hoping that like we can really help people understand is um, he's not trying to say that you're wrong. He's not trying to say that, uh, you know, you're just, you're full of your own BS and you don't even see it. That's how it comes across. Mm. It it makes, it might make someone feel um, bad for keeping a gratitude journal, but I don't think he's trying to make you feel bad as much as just kind of calling it as it sees it. But the thing is, is like we all, A, I think we all lie to ourselves. I think Kapil lies to himself. We all lie to ourselves to a certain degree. There is also a degree of like uh, cognitive dissonance where we have to kind of ignore some of the truths. Otherwise, we would be we would be paralyzed. Like the truth that Kapil said about the world being uh, mi- misery, life is suffering, life is misery, life is miserable. That I, I agree with that. Like that's a truth. Um, but if my context, every time I woke up was life is suffering, I wouldn't have a much, I wouldn't have much of a will to live. So I think that's where we need a little bit of cog- cognitive dissonance. We need a little bit of a fantasy to make sense of this, this miserable life, I guess, so to speak. Well, I, I think this relates to what he had to say about prescriptions and books and why, why books don't work. And and I know what you're saying too about, you know, everyone should, everyone can have a book and that'd be cool too. But I think it's sort of like, okay, you take a gratitude journal. Mm-hmm. A gratitude journal is really like a permission slip. 
Sure. Most of the tools that we use to make ourselves better, so to speak, they're permission slips. That that power is coming from you. Yes. And this tool you're using is a permission slip that's allowing you to more readily access that power because of whatever you've got going on that makes you say, this is something that I need to do in order to make it happen. And we can prove that it's a permission slip because we can take it and give it to somebody else and it might not work. So it's, what's the difference? The difference that makes the difference is you and something that's going on in you. And, and, I, and I think what Kapil is pointing out is that, all right, if you think that all of the power is in the gratitude journal or the exercise equipment or the book, then that's a different set of possibilities than if you say it's within me or it's who I am and I can play around with these different tools and books Mm -hmm. and I can keep in mind that this is a game that I'm playing. That's a different set of possibilities. You know, and and if I... If I follow advice because I think the power is in that advice, or if I read the book because I think the power is in that book, that's just a different way of living life than if I believe the power was in it, is, is within me and I'm using the book as a way to play the game that I'm playing more effectively. I mean, that, that's yeah. kind of how I would see it. But No, that's great. I mean, w- really what I hear you saying is, is like, there's a, uh, I guess there's a difference at looking at something and thinking that's the power versus uh, doing something and being empowered. So like with the gratitude journal, if I said I do a gratitude gratitude journal every single day, there are yeah. going to be, be people who'd be like, oh, you know what? I kind of look up, look up to Ryan and I'm going to start doing a gratitude journal. If they did that and it empowered them, great. But if they did that expecting um, a certain result and then they didn't get that result, well, then that's where it kind of leads to this, this discontentment. So yeah, um, yeah, there is, and I, and I think Kapil did a really good job of basically saying, hey, look, if it empowers you, like you talked about the ego and he's like, well, what does it do for you, man? Yeah. 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 I'm thinking about, because the other thing that he says is if it works for you, then it works for you. There's no problem with that. Yeah. So if a gratitude journal works for you, then it works for you. The reason that gratitude journals are nonsense is that we pretend that that is the end point, the solution the happiness, as though the happiness permeates the pages. However, if you feel compelled, as he even, I think he bashed on ice baths for a moment. I was in an ice bath this morning at 5 a.m. underneath the stars, and it was freezing. (laughs) It was 37 degrees outside, and the water was 36 degrees. And I felt uh, so alive. I felt compelled to do it. And I think fundamentally what Kapil is saying is, if you are compelled to do something, you can pursue that. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if you're compelled enough to do it, you don't need a method. You don't need a how-to. You don't need a prescription because you will figure it out. And guess what? There probably isn't a prescription to get you exactly what you want mm. because you need to write your own book. That's why someone else's book is not going to give you the fix, the solution. In fact, quite often, many of these prescriptions, they have a lot of side effects. They will cause more discontent in your life because you know what? This influencer said I need to do these five things. This influencer said I need to do these five things. I did all five of those things. I did these five things. I did these other 18 things. Mm -hmm. And now I didn't get the result I wanted. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I'm kind of sore now. And I'm stressed out. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of anxiety. I'm worried. Oh, no. These prescriptions 
actually decrease the quality of my life. They didn't give me what I thought they were going to give me. Mm. Now, why is that? They didn't give me what I thought they were going to give me because I had an expectation that if I do this, then this will happen. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, this will happen if I'm compelled enough to find the way to get to that as Kapil calls it, arrival. So here's 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 the thing though, like when it comes to advice, because I think Kapil, I think his stance is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but his stance is is like basically all advice is 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 BS, essentially. Well, it depends on what you mean by advice and what you mean by BS. But or prescriptions. Like okay. all all like written out prescriptions are kind of BS. And I I I think that everything that you just said, I totally agree with. I think he it sounds to me like he doesn't make room for the prescriptions that will actually lead people somewhere or lead an individual somewhere. Um, I don't like prescribing stuff because of exactly what you're saying. I don't want to set people up with like, well, if you do X, Y, and Z, you're going to be the perfect minimalist and you're going to live a happy life. I like sharing about what I have done because I've been through some hard things that, man, if I could really like um, guide someone to avoiding some of the hard things that I've done in my life, like I... I would love to help that person. Yes. And when I help someone, it makes me feel good. It strokes the ego. I'm like, oh, nice. Like I'm actually adding value to someone's life. So um, again, I agree with everything you're saying. But when I think about prescriptions though, like think about Lois and Clark, okay? They, when they started out um, traversing, you know, the United States, like they had to make their own paths and they had to go through, you know, hell and back to like map out what they were able to map out. So they've been through that journey. So now, you know, and, and then, you know, however long later, a couple of centuries later, um, we have these maps that we can follow to get to certain destinations. So if I show you a point on the map, TK, and I'm like, hey, here's, or you show me a point on the map and you're like, hey, here's where I'm trying to go. What do you think the best route is to take? I would recommend like, oh, here's like the six different ways that you might be able to get to your, to your destination. But by doing that, I'm I'm saving you the pain and anguish of like just having to like forge ahead and figure it out. Um, it, it's it's not quite a shortcut, but it is definitely like a path that creates less um, less trauma, less uh, uh, less difficulty. Right. Does it does what I'm saying make sense? It does. And I just want to point out the difference between mechanical prescriptions, which what is what a map is. If you want to get to Seattle, there are there are GPS directions that will take you there for sure. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I were there's a reason that the Charlotte Hornets have never won an NBA title. <laughs> right. Be they, real careful. Well, they're, they're <laughs> be real careful. Well, let, let's be let's break it down. They're owned by arguably the greatest basketball player of all time. How come he can't just show him his map? I yeah. got to six yeah. championships in six years. Here's the map. Here's exactly how I did it. Guess what? He's tried to do that year mm. after year after year, and they're flailing. Well, why is that? Because you can give someone the map. Mm -hmm. But if I just give you the map, it's not going to take you to Seattle, Ryan. Right. And and I mean, just to kind of carry on with this metaphor, um, you might give me a, a route to Seattle and then the, the bridge gets washed out on the way. And now I've got to find my own way. So I, I'm not saying that the, you know, any prescription is going to be uh, it I'm, because a map doesn't have to be just mechanical and things come up that aren't mechanical with a map. 
Um, no, I don't. I don't think that's but, true. Well, so let's let's think about like the road to simplification. Right, but now so, you're using map as a metaphor, right? Yeah, and I don't know where I don't know what simplification is. Not a, it's not a destination. Well, the if someone wants to start simplifying their life, um, you know, I and and you and and TK could talk about the ways that we have simplified our lives. Mm-hmm. And again, like it's not a prescription, but it but it is uh, these different ingredients that we used and. That is a place that most people would want to start from where they at least have some ingredients to look at rather than going into a completely blind. And and that's what I'm talking about, you know, with the map and TK needing to go somewhere and saying, hey, here are the here's the direction I took. You know, Um, I can't guarantee that that road's going to be opened. Right. Um, I can't guarantee that this is the best route for you. But here's here's a road that I took. Yes. And so the prescriptions in this case or the map in this case. Mm -hmm is a prerequisite for beginners. If I don't know how sure. to ride a bike, yes. then you can show me how to ride a bike. Yeah. I'm not going to become Lance Armstrong, even if Lance Armstrong shows me how to ride a bike. Lance Armstrong becomes Lance Armstrong because there wasn't a map for him. Yeah, 100%. But, uh, but even like the... the um, oh, what, what, I forget what he called him again, but like the Jesus and the Buddhas. He, he was... The Talk, ultimate. The ultimate. So he was talking about them kind of representing that. I think he even said like the tip of of the ultimate. Mm-hmm. But I mean, didn't Buddha and Jesus have, I mean, not very heavy prescriptions, but I mean, there there were some prescriptions in there, right? Or am I? You, you know, you're, you're right. In fact, uh, I've read what Kapil said about this. And um, he talks about how these prescriptions, even from the greats, ruin the life. And he talked mm. about it when I was talking to him today on this podcast. He was like, you have the, the what is it, the Eightfold Path or the Four Noble Truths. You prescriptionize the way the Buddha was living, but how many Buddhas are produced from the Four Noble Truths? The cliff notes, he, he called them. Right. Yeah. And so if I give Mallory the Four Noble Truths, she might find some value and even some understanding in that but that prescription does not turn her into a buddha it doesn't get you to the ultimate and so getting back to the thing he said if it works for you then it works for you but it's nonsense in the sense that you if you think you follow the map of buddha and you yourself will become buddha good luck with that yeah mm. yeah it, it's it, it reveals something that's very important about the pursuit of formulas and, and the tendency to treat life and success as a kind of mathematical equation. And anyone that's ever worked with children um, or, 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 or even teenagers, you, you find out very quickly that there is a kind of danger to giving people advice without, without them capturing on their own the spirit of the advice. There's always like this intangible spiritual component to getting it that you just can't put into a prescription. You can't fit it into the prescription. I mean, so like when when working with high school students, you know, you, you'll say something like, all right, when you're applying for that first job and they bring you in for an interview, 
One thing that I want you to do is at the end of the interview, they're usually going to ask you if you have any questions. Always ask a question because that signals curiosity about the job. Hmm. And since most people don't do it, that's something that'll make them more likely to remember you. And, and you think you've given them everything that they need and you don't realize until they go and screw that up that there's still something that you can't turn into a prescription. Like they'll go in there and, and, and they'll, they'll ask a question that will make that person not like them at all. And you go, oh no, it's that's not the kind of question you want to ask. <laughs> the whole point of it is to ask a question that signals curiosity about the job. Okay, I know what I'll do. I'll lengthen my prescription. I'll make it a two long, two page long prescription where I suggest that they ask a question. Mm-hmm. I give them examples of what kinds of questions to ask. And you start to realize very quickly, there is no piece of advice you can't you can give to someone mm-hmm. that they can't find a way to screw up. Mm-hmm. Every single piece of advice can make your life worse. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, and because there's something to getting it that can't be contained in the prescription. And what is that? It, it's kind of like why when you have a good teacher or a good therapist and you thank them for saving your life, you thank them for like enlightening you, the great ones always say something like, it was you, man. Mm-hmm. It was you. You yeah. did the work. And, and they mean that. And they really mean it. Right. And they're not just trying to make you feel good. And they're not denying that they gave you some valuable tools but at the same time, you and they know that they're telling you the truth. It was you who did it. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the map doesn't give you the it factor that would make you want to travel to the destination that the map leads to. Yeah. No, I, I totally, yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I, I don't even think we're disagreeing on any of this stuff. I think it's a matter of like, for me, it's unpacking it and trying to make sense of it. And, and again, like, I really just want to help people, um, not feel turned off by the things that Kapil has to say. Because it's, I, I'm it's, with you. I, I feel that same tug. But my question now is, why do we feel that tug? Right, because, right. because... Why do I need them to understand this? It's not that I need them to understand, but... Why do you want them to understand it? Right. So I have a desire to help people, good or bad, uh, truth or lie. Like, I have this desire to add value to other people's lives. Yeah. So... I'm not saying that that is, again, I'm not saying that that is a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. And I have, I understand that in a way it's nonsensical to want to help people. Like I get that. Um, But it is one of those, it's one of those things that um, I'm I'm okay with how I use it. Like it doesn't, it doesn't hurt me. Like it, you know, going back to what Kapil was talking about, you know, does it help you or does it not help you? Does it empower you? Does it disempower you? Like, what does it do for you? For me, um, it gives me a sense of purpose. And I think that we're all looking for a sense of purpose. So that's, I mean, that's how I would append Kapil stuff is like, what gives you purpose? Does your hope give you a purpose or does it get in your way? Does me wanting to help people, does it serve a purpose or does it, does it get in the way? So um, there's nothing, uh, you know, valiant or, you know, I don't put myself on a pedestal because I like to help people. But um, I do, because I, I know the pain and the suffering that I had to go through in life. And if I could like wave a magic wand and, and get rid of all the suffering, I would. But I don't have that magic wand. All I have is my own suffering that I, I learned how to kind of get past and avoid or however you want to look at it. So transferring that to someone else, um, it, 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 it feels like, oh, wow, like maybe I can, maybe I can help people uh, not suffer as, as much as they would. And you started to talk about suffering. I was like really hoping that we would go down that road. Because mm. the, the only question I had for Kapil mm. that I really wish I could have asked was, is 
all these things that we're talking about, all these self-help books, all these prescriptions, you know, whatever they are, um, this is all, this is all about people trying to either like process their trauma, get over their trauma or to suffer a little bit less in life. Yes. And so what do you think, what do you guys think, you know, he would say, like, if you asked him the question of, um, what do you think about, you know, people's trauma and them getting past it? I, I think he said it. I, I think he said it because early on he, he talked about how um, even the people that are like experts and that are, that are, you know, doing all of this stuff and giving all this advice and they're in the business of helping people. He says, he doesn't think any of those people intend any harm. They're just all trying to alleviate misery and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, Um, he's just presenting a way of looking at our relationship to misery that is open for consideration and that could allow one to play a different game. And he's doing that with a sense of non-judgment towards how we react to it. And, and I think here's where it could be helpful to make a distinction between I don't care and I'm not attached because I hear Josh say it this way and sometimes I say it this way. Kapil was talking this way. Like, I don't care. I don't care. Yeah. I, I don't think the phrase I don't care means, hey, I'm a robot. I have no human capacity for emotional or physical sensation. I think it's more of, I'm not attached to an outcome here. So sometimes when I when I invite friends over, I says, hey man, if you can stop by, it'd be great to have you. Um, but you know, I'm good either way. Or, or I may just tell them that, you know, I don't care. If they can't make it, no, I don't care. It doesn't mean if you showed up, I would treat you like a robot mm-hmm. or that I would disrespect you. It doesn't mean that I'm incapable of noticing the difference between you being there and not being there. It just means I'm not attached to a narrative that says, your inability to make it would diminish me and the quality of what we have. All is still well. Yeah. So, <clears throat> okay. I, I see what you're saying. And I think you live that way, by the way. You sure. help people because you care about them, but you're also not so attached that when someone's like, hey, Ryan, your idea isn't useful for me, you don't start crying. And, or when someone yeah. says, you add no value to the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I want to make a distinction. So, well, oh, okay, go ahead. Go for it. I think when I, I don't care what words you use because again, we can get bogged down in definition. Yes. But when I think of the helper, I think of myself when I would try to force help onto other people. Yeah. Here's what you should be doing. Here's what you should be eating. Here's where you should live. Yes. Here's how you should exercise. Here's what time you should get up. Here's how you should meditate. Here's the specific recipe, practice, method formula to follow mm-hmm. and then you will be cured why because i know better i'm going to give you my advice and if you don't want it, i'm going to force it on you because i'm right, right and you are wrong however what i see and i've always seen this with ryan what i see in ryan is not the hel- that kind of helper but the supporter oh you need mm. something how how can i help meaning how can I support you in that endeavor? I'm not going to drag you kicking and screaming to my worldview. I'm not going to drag you kicking and screaming to success. I'm not going to drag you kicking and screaming to my formula. Mm. That's not what you're doing, Ryan. You're listening and you're offering observations, insights. And so I wanted to wrap up the episode by reading this paragraph. And I'd love to hear your comments on this. This is how I ended my last email to Kapil. 
Last year, I apologized to my audience for my participation in the advice epidemic. I did an essay about that, which I read at the last Sunday symposium. And also we did, Ryan and I did an episode called the advice epidemic. And I ceased giving advice, opting instead for observations, insights, and truth. Many many people didn't understand this shift. Some were incensed. They wanted to hear my beliefs, my opinions, my off-the-rack self-righteousness. Still, to my surprise, there were a large number of listeners who stuck around. Some of them were merely curious or entertained. A few, however, are genuine seekers. And I found that if there's somewhere where I disagree with Capil, is he thinks that the pursuit of truth is rarer than what I've seen by interacting with a lot of people. Hmm. Maybe they're not pursuing the same depths that he is pursuing. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are curious. And you'll recall at our last Sunday symposium, there was a woman who was like, I know you don't have any advice for me, but do you have any tips? Or do you, and, and then, but, and then, and or strategies. You were like, no tips. What about strategies? Yeah, right. no, no strategies. And eventually at one point I said, I don't even have any hope for you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I said, but I do have some insights. And mm. I learned this originally from Rob Bell, but after I filtered that through Kapil's work, it became so much more relevant to my own life. No, I don't want to help you. If this helps, wonderful. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, that's okay too. But I do want to love you. And we didn't even get a chance to talk to Kapil about love. So I have to bring him back on the podcast because mm-hmm. he's the one, even though he doesn't write about love. In fact, he often refuses to even talk about it. He's the one who helped me understand what love is and how we've perversed it with our attachments, mm-hmm. with our desires, with our ability to drag people in our direction to like the things that we like, to want the things that we want, Mm. to love someone, to see them for who they are without trying to convince them. And he did talk a bit about convincing and how that's a fruitless pursuit. Mm. And so maybe we'll have him back on the show with the three of us. And I think we could have a great conversation with him then. Yeah. 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 I really want to bring up the trauma aspect with him because, I mean, I do see what you're saying, TK, about... Um, he didn't call anything good or bad as far as like the tools that you're using, but I, w- I would just love to hear his insight on how does someone hold trauma and, and, and that, and he might have a really powerful response there. Well, I, how can you ask that question without asking for a prescription? Right, exactly. So, so the, like, what is, or what is his perspective on, on trauma? Like that would, maybe that's the question. Like, Hey, what is your perspective on trauma? Just to hear him talk about like, A, how it affects our lives. Um, and B, uh, you know, the, I'm trying so hard not to do like a how to type thing, but yeah, like the, the basically how trauma affects our lives. And then, uh, how someone can move past it. I don't know how else to put it. I know he's not going to give a how-to. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, sense. how can I better understand trauma is yeah. is not a, a how-to, but I, I want a better understand. And so I think what he would do if he was having, if he was having a conversation with you right now, he would say, well, what trauma are you talking about specifically? Because trauma is just mm-hmm. a word that we use. Yeah. Let's get specific. What 
are you trying to better understand about trauma? And we'll bring him back on the show to uh, maybe we can get him here in person and mm-hmm. we can uh, we can do the his first ever video interview. Yeah, in fact, be- there's there's only one picture of him. If you're watching the video version of this podcast, you see the one picture that exists of <laughs> Kapil Gupta. It's not on his Twitter profile. It's not on his website. Life there- goals right there. Yeah. Reduce your digital footprint to one picture. Hey, can we talk about advice for another minute? Yeah, we're going to wrap up here in a second. What do you got for us? What What are your your last thoughts on advice? So uh, what's funny is um, online, I, I was sharing some tips on something. And and by the way, I, I do offer advice and I'll tell you why in a minute. <laughs> I, I had someone say to me, hey, man, uh, do you ever feel like it might be presumptuous to be sharing your thoughts about things? And I said, no, I, but I actually think it would be presumptuous for me to do the opposite. And he was like, what do you mean? I said, well, I think it would be presumptuous for me to not share ideas about what's worked for me and what I'm passionate about, because now I'm assuming that the world can't handle one man (laughs) telling that world what's worked for him. Mm -hmm. And I'm also assuming that the world can't decide for itself if it wants to experiment with what I said. And I think one of the ways that we kind of stereotype people that are in the quote unquote advice business is we assume almost in spite of the incessant declarations to the contrary, that people who give advice think that what they're saying is the only way to see it and that it's universally applicable to everyone. Mm -hmm. There may be some people like that who speak with that arrogant, authoritative tone, but a lot of people out there who are in the business of coaching, consulting, counseling, and so on, they're saying, look, here are some ways of seeing things. Since you came to me, I'm not going to give you something like, oh, well, anything will do because you can do that by yourself. I'm going to give you my personality. I'm going to tell you my point of view. I'm going to tell you what's worked for me, what's worked for my clients. And then I expect you to take that and weigh it against your own judgment and your own experience. And I think most people, if you told them, hey, that doesn't work for me, they say, yeah, I, I didn't put it out there with that assumption. I put it out there because maybe it could help provoke something within you that leads to clarity. And so I, 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 To me, I find that to be an important caveat. I care about helping people. I give advice, but I don't give it non-dogmatic. I don't give it dogmatically and I don't give it with the assumption that Mm. me telling you what I think is a substitute for you thinking for yourself. Yeah. Man, if we had him on the show, like if I was talking to him, I would, the thing I'd be worried about the most is sounding like defensive because I don't feel Mm. defensive. But when these thoughts come up, um, for me, it's about like saying, hey, like I agree with what he's saying, but there are these obstacles to get through to, to fully mm. understand what he's saying. Your, your, your conditioning, my conditioning, yes. our conditioning right. has created these obstacles. Yes. So, right. Exactly. So talking to him, there's conditioning that I have that um, I need a new perspective on to kind of get some of the things that he is saying. Mm-hmm. And like I said, like I would just be worried that I might come across as like defensive when I don't feel defensive. I don't, when I first heard him, I'm like, oh, I want to prove him wrong. You know what I'm saying? Like that was kind of the first inclination. I think the first thing I ever heard you say about him was, uh, it was, it was about how hope was useless. It was nonsensical. And, um, <laughs> and, and that, um, that I'm like, well, that's not true. Like, yeah. And, and the thing is, it's always about context and you brought up something important. And, 
the thing I talked about with hope is hope is a form of expectation when I was talking to him. Yep. And what you said, you were echoing something he said, and I wrote it down as you said it, Ryan, because I think this is ultimately what to get out of this conversation. What does it do for you? Mm-hmm. What does your ego do for you? What does hope do for you? Is Because if hope propels you along in the direction in which you want to go, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But for me, hope was creating more misery in my life. And I never thought of that because whenever we talk about hope, we presuppose it is virtuous, it is good, it is moral. There couldn't be anything wrong with hope. And if you see it any differently, then you yourself are wrong because I've been conditioned to feel that way. Right. As opposed to saying, huh, what are these prescriptions doing for me? Yeah. What is hope doing for me? What are attachments doing for me? And often the answer is, they're making me miserable. My clinging is making me, it's not doing what I want it to do. And you and I knew this over a decade ago, Ryan, when we started simplifying. The things we thought were going to make us happy were actually the objects of our discontent. Now, can't that be true for hope, for expectations, for relationships, anything in your life? What does it do for you. And if it's not doing what I wanted it to do, what I've spent the time doing now is systematically letting go, Mm. setting those things down that are no longer serving me, both materially and psychologically. And in doing that, I found tremendous freedom. I want to wrap up this episode by saying that this is the first time I've done this earnestly because it hasn't been a prescription. For the first time in my life, I have a genuine New Year's resolution. Hmm. And the problem with this is it's not specific. It's not measurable. But I'll know it when I feel it, right? And this resolution for me, since this is our first episode of the year, my resolution is to be more wiggly. Hmm. You've known me for a long time, Ryan. I've been allergic to fun for 30 years. <laughs> he breaks out in hives. It's really, it's really crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so when I talk about being more wiggly or what Alan Watts would say when he talks about there are goo, goo people and there are prickly people, but really, you know, Ryan's the goo person. I'm the prickly person. Uh, by the way, we're beginning to sell Ryan's goo on our website. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Ryansgoo.com. Don't go there. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a website, but if it is, it, it don't is now. go it is there. Now. Yeah. <laughs> so Ryan is the gooey of the duo before we brought TK on. And I was the prickly one. And But the truth is, we're all gooey prickles and prickly goo. Mm. And I think about my own rigidity. My rigidity, what does it do for me? It has served me really well until it becomes an obstacle. Mm. And it's an obstacle for my own contentment. Mm. And today has been a non-rigid day, relatively speaking, because we're trying to do, as we are closing the studio for the holidays, recording this right before Christmas, I usually have a set structure. We need to do it exactly like this. And I came in here and said, I don't know how this is going to go today. We're having this conversation with Kapil. It could go one way. It could go a completely different direction. But I'm going to be wiggly. Mm. Because I found that often my rigidity serves me Mm. until it stops serving me. Mm -hmm. And so finding that balance between wiggliness and rigidity. Because everything we've created, there's been 
a great deal of my own rigidity that has allowed us to create those things. It provided some structure, some form to those things. Now, I would never prescribe rigidity to anyone else. I also wouldn't prescribe being wiggly. How would I even make a prescription about that, right? (laughs) But I've noticed in my own life that at certain points, I become so rigid that it's stifling. And so I'll report back and let you know how gooey I've become in the not too distant future. It's interesting because it makes me want to make the resolution to be a little bit more prickly, to be a little bit more rigid because my gooeyness gets in the way. Mm. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I'm not committing to that, but uh, um, I, I definitely uh, want to chew more on that idea. I'm just going to keep on enjoying you guys' right. prickly and gooeyness. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. That's our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Post-Production Peter, Emma the Immigrant, and the rest of our team, I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things that is not a prescription. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening, y'all. See you later, patrons. Peace, y'all. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it.